if you were to choose a story from the Bible about God's grace to share with a friend or to uh, read for your own encouragement, I wonder what story you would choose. Perhaps many of us would naturally turn to the New Testament, as we don't see a better example of God's amazing grace than the sending of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. And this is, of course, where God's promise to Abraham was fulfilled in that all nations would now be blessed. Jews and non-Jews, Gentiles, uh, would be blessed through the Lord Jesus Christ. And for this reason, I think the New Testament can sometimes feel that little bit more inclusive. Whereas the Old Testament, well, the Old Testament seems to focus predominantly on the Israelites, God's chosen people. However, if you know your Bibles well, and I know a good number here do know their Bibles well, we know that God's grace wasn't restricted only to the Israelites in the Old Testament. And there are these wonderful accounts throughout the Old Testament, glimpses of God's grace being poured out upon all nations. We're going to go back to one such account this evening. I think an account that despite being relatively short is is full of God's grace. It's full of God's providence. And I pray it would be both an encouragement and a challenge to unbeliever and believer um, tonight. So if you have a Bible with you, please open it to 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 to 19. 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 to 19. This is the account of Naaman. We're going to what would be modern day still Syria, uh, the days of Elisha the prophet. Reading from 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honourable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory in Syria. He was also a mighty man of valour, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened, when the king of Israel read the letter, that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God? To kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, 
Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored to you and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpa, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God. He and his aides and came and stood before him and he said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Naaman said, Then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offerings or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Yet in this thing may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the temple of Rimmon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, when I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord Please pardon your servant in this thing. Then he said to him, go in peace. So he departed from him a short distance. That is the word of God. Well, we'll sing one more song. Amazing Grace. One more hymn, should I say? Amazing Grace, number 487. We'll certainly stand to sing this one. And then we'll come to look at God's word together. Oh. 
heads in prayer again as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is truth. In a world where there is so much fake news and so many untruths, thank you that we can turn to your word. Thank you for the blessing that we have in this country to have it in a language that we can read, that we can understand. And Lord, we pray that in your mercy you would speak to us this evening uh, through it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we come to consider Naaman, I think it is clear that we really don't have to make many deductions from our text to know that Naaman's CV, his resume, if you will, would have been a pretty impressive one. From the opening verse, we read that Naaman was commander of the Syrian army. Well, That is no small achievement. It is likely at this point in history that this man is probably the second most important man in Syria. It's likely that he is in a position that that Joseph was promoted to by Pharaoh in Genesis 41, second in command. We also read that he had been successful, he'd had victory in battle, and that he was a mighty man of valour. I think this man would have had a pretty impressive CV. But for those of us that have employed people, well, what about those all-important supporting references? Well, I think there are two in our text. Verse 1, we read that he was a great and honourable man in the eyes of his master. Well, that is no small thing. This is the king of Syria that has this high opinion of Naaman. That's one reference that I think would pass most of our approval. The second uh, reference, I think, is a little bit more subtle, but I think it is there in our text. If you look at verse 13, you'll see that Naaman's servants actually wanted their master to be healed. Now, that is a really interesting reference. This man was admired both by um, his, his manager, if you like, but also those that worked for him. And those employees, in my experience, are incredibly valuable. 
So I think we can say with confidence, when we come to think about Naaman this evening, this man was well-liked, he was well-known, he was respected, he was admired, he was courageous, he was successful. Yet if we go back to verse 1, there's just that closing remark in God's word that you can't get away from, but a leper. Naaman had leprosy. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time this evening. I don't think it would be beneficial for us to talk a lot about leprosy. But I will say this, at this moment in in history, this disease was a killer. It's likely that Naaman, depending when he contracted it, would have had a life expectancy now of 10 to 30 years. Now, this diagnosis of leprosy, well, it, it undoubtedly made a huge change for Naaman. Suddenly, his earthly future looked pretty bleak. Suddenly, the warmth in which society would have held Naaman in, the high esteem that they had for him, well, that would have been turned upside down. This was going to change. This was something that Naaman had no control over. And whilst we don't know how many remedies that Naaman had tried, I think it's likely that he would have tried quite a few If he was to listen to a servant girl in his own house, a foreign servant girl, well, that tells me this man was pretty desperate. However, Naaman, like so many people in Britain today, is not aware of an even more pressing need, the eternal life-threatening disease of sin. We see in Naaman this lack of acknowledgement of the one true God. Well, this is the same God who had given him victory in battle. It's the same God who blesses this country today with his word. A freedom to worship him as we are doing now. A God who has seen fit to give Britain a time of relative peace. Health care, food, housing, education. And yet, how many people today, just like Naaman, don't recognise their biggest need in life? Just like Naaman, don't acknowledge the one true God? Well, I think what we see in our passage tonight is that God knew Naaman. And amazingly, through his leprosy, through this time of suffering, God gives Naaman the far bigger miracle of eternal saving faith. And I think it reminds us that God knows you. God knows me. And God, through his grace, is continuing to save men and women, boys and girls, this day. I have three relatively simple headings tonight. We're going to look at Naaman, a man without faith. Then we're going to look at God's providence for Naaman. And then hopefully, if we have time, we'll look at Naaman, a man with faith. And look at the difference. Firstly, then, Naaman, a man without faith. And I don't think we have to read on far in our text to see that just like you and I, there are areas of sin in this man's life. In fact, if you're familiar with this account of Naaman, you will know that this man is known for being proud. And I think when you look at the first 12 verses, it is relatively easy to see why he is known as being a proud man. Firstly, we see that Naaman's pride has an impact because he goes to the wrong person when he goes to Israel. The suggestion, I think, is crystal clear by the the girl, the young girl in verse 3. If only my master would go to the prophet who is in Samaria. 
So why does Naaman, why doesn't he challenge the king and say, actually, king, don't, don't write a letter to the king of Israel. It's the prophet I need to see, not the king. Well, I think it's clear that actually Naaman likes the idea of going to the king. After all, he is the commander of the Syrian army. He's a VIP. The, the red carpet should be rolled out. He should have an entrance befitting of a man of his position into Israel. Well, we see his pride again, I think, in a, at Elisha's house. We read that in verse 11 that Naaman is not at all happy with the messenger. This is what we read in verse 11. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me. And here is Naaman now on his second attempt to try and get help in Israel visiting the prophet Elisha, probably in far more humble surroundings than the palace, and Naaman expects that the prophet should be honoured by his presence. And yet Elisha doesn't even come out to him. He sends a servant with the message of healing. And Naaman's not happy. He's not happy with the messenger. And then we see Naaman's pride in his rejection of the process for being healed. It was both an undignified way of uh, potentially being healed, and it was too simple for a man of his calibre. When you, when you read this account of Naaman, I, I come to this point in the passage, and I think, did he regret going to Israel altogether? You know, he's gone to the palace. Now, that's the wrong place. I, I can't help you. And then he goes to these humble surroundings, and Elisha doesn't even come out. And now he's been told to go and wash seven times in the muddy Jordan. Well, surely there was a harder task that I can do. Surely... Uh, there's a more dignified way that I can be healed. Surely there's a way that would give me the respect that I feel I've earned. Lastly, I think we see his pride in the way that Naaman wanted to pay his way. Do you notice that in verse 5? Look at the amount of gifts that, that Naaman brought with him. Verse 5, so he departed and he took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. I, I did some sums this week and I was helped out by my study Bible. That's 150 pounds of gold. 68 kilos, for those of us that are younger. <laughs> Do you know, the, the value of that gold, alone, uh, that, that gold alone today is three million pounds. This man took with him a, a wealth of, of gifts in order to pay the way for his healing. Naaman didn't want to be seen as someone needing charity. He didn't want to be seen as someone getting something for nothing. He didn't want to feel indebted to anyone. He wanted to pay his way. You see, Naaman was a proud man. And the more I, I look around this country today, I'm a patriotic Englishman, British man, I should say, an Englishman. But isn't it pride? that so often stops men and women, boys and girls, from coming to the Lord Jesus Christ? Think about those four examples of Naaman that we've, we've just quickly gone through. You see, I think people in Britain today, just like Naaman, are going to the wrong person for real help. There are a myriad of solutions today if you have problems. If you have a problem with money, you just Google, I've got a problem with money, and you'll get pages of results. There are adverts in papers, magazines, on TV, on YouTube, across social media. If you have problems with your health, with your diet, if you're struggling with mental health, 
There are adverts for people, organisations to try and help you. Now I am sure that there are many people and organisations that are genuinely trying to help other people. I think that the king of Syria here was genuinely trying to help Naaman. Oh, I'll write a letter to the king, let me help you out. However, and I think this is key, if, like Naaman, there is a deeper issue of sin in our lives that needs to be addressed, then unless we go to the Lord Jesus Christ, we will not be helped. <laughs> we will keep going to the wrong people. Maybe we'll get a little bit better managing our finances. Maybe our diet will improve. But if we don't go to the Lord Jesus Christ, we won't ever know true happiness. We won't have a sure and certain hope in the desperate times that we're living in. We read in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We must turn to Jesus. And then I think similarly, uh, like Naaman today, many people, they're just not happy with the messenger. They don't want to read the Bible. Oh, that's an old, out-of-date book. They don't actually look at the historical evidence that there is for the Bible. Go and visit the British Museum. It's a really encouraging trip as a, British, as a, as a Christian. It is the Bible that is God's messenger today, through his spirit, speaking through God's word. And yet so many people in their pride, uh, that's an old book, I haven't got time for the Bible. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 tells us that God's word is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. Now you see, some like Naaman today, well they struggle with the simplicity of the, the Christian message. The process for being saved, of, of having eternal life. Paul said this in Romans chapter 10 verse 9, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Didn't the Apostle Paul have that wonderful uh, Holy Spirit-inspired ability to put the gospel in a sentence? So incredibly costly for our Lord Jesus Christ, and yet made wonderfully simple for us. Naaman had to go and wash seven times. We need to come before the Lord Jesus. Confess him as our Lord, ask him to forgive us and believe in him and we can be saved. It is simple. Sadly, it is too simple for some because just like Naaman, there are many today that want to work their way into heaven. They want to earn their salvation. If there is a God, well, I'll get into heaven because I'll, uh, I'll concentrate on my good deeds. I think we see this, don't we, in the religions of the world around us? Jehovah's Witnesses trying to earn their salvation. If you have a Muslim friend, maybe you see this. I used to work with a, a Muslim um, as good friends. She was desperately trying to work her way into heaven. She didn't have the assurance that we have as Christians. She wanted to pay her own way. She wanted to earn her salvation. She needed to pray enough. She needed to go on a, a pilgrimage. She needed to do, do, do. That's what you find with the religions of the world. Christianity is done, done, done. Done by the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, I think, is so clear. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. 
Salvation is God's gift to mankind through Jesus. It is something that we can never, ever earn. It is freely given. So I think it's interesting, isn't it, that the pride that actually we see in Naaman, we see in the world today. God's word continues to be relevant. And if we go back to Naaman, just notice that that sin in Naaman's life, it isn't only pride. Anger is also recorded in verse 11. We read he became furious and rage is also mentioned at the end of verse 12. So Naaman, just like you and I, had areas of sin in his life. He needed God's grace and saving faith just as much as any unbeliever who has ever walked on this earth. He needed saving faith more than what he needed to be healed of leprosy. He just didn't realise it. Just like so many people with problems in Britain today. Well, I need to ask you tonight before we go on, have you spoken to the right person for real help? Have you spoken to the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Are you willing to to read and to listen to God's message today through his word, the Bible? Are you prepared for a, a simple solution? Or are you trying to earn your way to heaven? Naaman was a man without faith. Well, let's move on and look at God's providence for Naaman. And I think we see God's providence in two ways in this account. There there are more, but I want to focus on two ways. I think we see it um, both in the young girl and also in Elisha. So firstly, I just want us to spend some time considering this young girl. I think it's worth noting here that the Hebrew word used for young girl is really descriptive. It tells us that this girl had not yet reached adolescence. She was 12 years old at most. Keep that in mind. And I think what stands out most about this young girl is her faith in the middle of a life-changing trial. This is what we read in, well, we read in verse 2 that she had been taken captive following a Syrian raid. Do you know this girl had likely been taken from her parents, or worse still, had perhaps even seen her parents killed and then was taken. I can't begin to think just how horrific that must have been for her. And now she's a slave with, with little or no rights. She's in a foreign country where they worship foreign gods. And yet... Evidence of a steadfast faith in the Lord, I think, can be seen in at least three ways. I think, firstly, we see her faith in her service as a slave. Verse 2, we read, she served, uh, uh, sorry, she waited on Naaman's wife. Now, it's very likely when she was first taken captive, she wouldn't have immediately been taken into Naaman's household and promoted to serve in the mistress of the house. And yet, here she is serving Naaman's wife but I think there's even stronger evidence for her faithful service as a slave because the mere fact that Naaman's wife would listen to a Hebrew girl young girl 12 years or younger the fact that Naaman would actually pay attention to his wife and also to listen to a servant girl well surely it tells us doesn't it that she must have continued to honor God in her life 
She must have continued to work hard in her place of work, despite tragic personal circumstances. Secondly, I think we see her faith in her love for her enemies. Verse 3, if only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. She surely would have had some inkling of Naaman's position in society. She likely would have seen Naaman leave the house with his army uniform on. Here was one of the, the men that was responsible for her taken captive. Maybe one of the men who's responsible for the death of her parents. And I, I don't believe what we read here was just a token gesture of help. You know, it's one of those times, oh, I'm a Christian, I feel obliged, I better say this. Look at her plea, if only, if only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. That is real love for your enemy, isn't it? Well, thirdly, I think we see her faith in her total belief in both the power of God and the compassion of God. There's just, there's no doubt in her mind that God wouldn't help Naaman. I find this staggering. I think in many ways this girl had a better understanding of God's grace and more confidence in God than many Christians today. Look at her words, for he would heal him of his leprosy. He would, not might. He would heal him of his leprosy. Now we, we need to pause for a moment when we're thinking about this young girl and think, well, what, what is God saying to us today? How can we apply these truths? And, and I want to say, first of all, I hope this young girl is an encouragement to us all. Particularly if we feel pretty insignificant as a Christian. There's so many other people that are more gifted than I am. I hope we are encouraged if we ourselves are, are right now in the middle of a, a life-changing trial. Because this young girl, I think, reminds us that God can and he will use any one of his people for his purposes. This young girl would have had no idea of the impact of her example over 2,800 years. Here we are, learning afresh from her faith. Being reminded that we too should honour God wherever we work. Naaman and his wife took notice of this little girl, most likely because she worked diligently. She worked efficiently. She worked productively. She worked hard. Well, so should we, shouldn't we? In our daily employment, when we're at home, taking care of the family, when we're helping out our neighbour, let us work hard for the Lord. Let us honour God in our work, in our service. And pray that it would influence non-believers the way this young girl had such an impact. And what a challenge we, we find in this young girl to, to really love our enemies. I wonder how many of us are praying for our enemies the way Jesus instructs us to in, in Matthew chapter 5. Pray for those that persecute you. Who are the people that we most struggle with in the office, at home, in our families? Dare I say, are there people in church that sometimes we just struggle to see eye to eye with? Well, when was the last time that you prayed for them? And when you pray, don't just pray for those that 
you can see their flaws and Lord change this about them so that I would find it easier to, to like them and to love them as a brother and sister pray that God would work in your own heart <laughs> that we would be changed in his grace in our feelings towards them and then lastly do we really believe God can save how about renowned, renowned um, atheist Richard Dawkins and all the damage that he has tried to do to the gospel cause. Can God really save Richard Dawkins? Do we believe that? What about our friends, family members, those who have made it really clear to us, I'm happy for you if you're a Christian, but it's just not for me. Can God really turn their hearts around? Do we have the same belief that this young girl had that God really can save the vilest offender who truly believes because we should have. We should be encouraged by her example. Too often when I've heard sermons on this passage down through the years, we think the young girl will save her for Sunday school. Let me tell you, we learn lots from the children. We see that in the Lord Jesus, don't we? Unless you enter the kingdom of God like a child, you'll never enter. Well, we also see God's providence through Elisha. And for fear of time, I'm trying to cram a lot in this evening, but I think, again, there are three lessons that we can learn quickly from Elisha. The first is this. A servant of God is looking for opportunities to serve. A servant of God is looking for opportunities to serve. Verse 8. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. You see, Elisha could have waited, couldn't he? I think I would have been tempted to have waited. Well, he knows that she is the prophet he's meant to see. Let's wait for the penny to drop. I'm not going to say anything. Elisha could have carried on watching from afar, waiting for the next piece of news. I wonder where he's going to go next before he comes to me. But no, the servant of God is looking for opportunities to serve. And let me say, we should be as well. Looking for opportunities to serve our Lord. Whether or not it's here at church. Whether or not it's in the workplace. We should be praying for opportunities each and every day to be able to share our faith. In conversations, perhaps in the playground. When we're out with unbelieving friends. Lord, please, this evening, would you give me an opportunity? And look for those opportunities. Elisha was looking for opportunities to serve God. I think the second lesson that we observe from Elisha is that he keeps the message of healing simple. Verse 10, go and wash in the Jordan seven times. That was what God had told Elisha to, to say to, to Naaman. And so that's exactly what Elisha says to Naaman. Well, the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ is also reasonably simple to share isn't it for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life that is the gospel but I believe as Christians particularly in a world that is is growing up now so absent from um, Sunday school from Bible teaching I grew up in a generation where lots of my friends still actually went to church activities there's less now we need to pray that the Holy Spirit helps us to keep the gospel message simple. I think it is great to defend God's word. But let me say, I've seen lots of Christians get heavily 
involved with atheists or with unbelievers on topics of homosexuality, on gender, on conversion therapy. Well, have those conversations. I'm not in any way we stand up for God's truth. That is the right thing to do. But if you're having it with an unbeliever and you haven't mentioned that the Lord Jesus Christ loves them and that he died on the cross for them, please do that. We must share the gospel. We must keep it simple and not complicate it. Lastly, I think when we look at God's providence through Elisha, and I think this is... This is it's wonderful, really. Notice that Elisha, he doesn't compromise the message of salvation. He doesn't compromise the message of salvation. When, you see, when Naaman returns from being healed, he offers this, this staggering gift to Elisha. And yet Elisha says in verse 16, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, Naaman. He's urging him, please take something. But he refused. Now, now that is interesting, particularly if you read chapter 5 and you get the chance to read chapter 4 beforehand. Because in chapter 4, you see, Elisha does accept a gift. He accepts a gift of a room to stay in from the Shumanite woman and her husband. They offer him a place that when you're staying in our village, please come and stay in our room. And he accepts that gift. So I don't think chapter 5 is telling us, well, the workers of God, you, you cannot accept any gifts. I don't think that's the point here. You see, that the difference in chapter 5 versus chapter 4 is that on this occasion, by accepting a gift, Elisha risked compromising the message of salvation. You see, back in Syria, it is likely that the prophets of Rimmon would have been quite corrupt and highly susceptible to receiving a bribe. Sadly, we see this in the world today, the prosperity gospel. You give and you'll be blessed. The priest saying, come here, give us your, your money and then, and then we'll bless you. And it was so important for Naaman to know, to understand that his healing, his newly found faith was solely by the grace of God. It was not because of his status. It was not because he was a wealthy man that he was healed. Nor could the value of his saving faith ever be measured in financial terms. You see, Elisha kept the focus on God and his grace. And when we share our testimonies, when we share the gospel, so should we. Keep the focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. To finish, do we have time? Hopefully, let's try and... It's, it's such an encouragement. There's this transformation in Naaman. So let's, let's look at Naaman now, a man with faith. Because what a difference God's grace makes in someone's life. I think there is much evidence for Naaman. I had to cut this way back. I last looked at Naaman a good number of years ago and I was going through my sermon notes and thinking, Malcolm, you've got too much here. There is so much in God's word. But, but, but first of all, look at this. Look at this evidence for his faith. Look at his testimony. It's a powerful testimony. Verse 15, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. When you go through this account of Naaman, and perhaps even this evening, if you put yourself in his shoes, if you've travelled all the way to Israel and you go to the wrong place, and then you go to Elisha and you're expecting Elisha to come out, and Elisha doesn't do what he expects. There's so much uncertainty for Naaman in this account. And you know, faith brings certainty. It is a wonderful thing to know something rather than, I think this is going to happen. 
<laughs> when I was thinking about this, it, it reminded me when I used to work in the travel industry many years ago, uh, not many years ago that I was working in the travel industry, um, but, but many years ago before I had children, and I was able to take my wife on a, a short break across to Chicago. And somehow I'd watched this documentary in the, in the week before we went about 10 places to eat in America if you get the chance. And number two or number three was the Cheesecake Factory. Well, let me tell you something. Michelle and I both love cheesecake. And I thought as I watched this program, I don't know how I ended up watching it, I thought, well, I'll make a note of that, actually. And I, I noticed the restaurant that was featured was in Chicago. So I thought, well, this would be a really nice end to our short stay in Chicago if we could eat at this restaurant. I thought this would be a lovely place to go. Well, Michelle and I did go to the Cheesecake Factory. And let me tell you, <laughs> uh, the starters alone, Americans, uh, not very good with portions. We, we were full after our starters. We actually had to take the cheesecake home with us. But they had 57 different slices of cheesecake you could eat. But it's a difference, isn't it? You see, I could have said, well, I think this place is good. Let, let, if, you, if you ever go into Chicago, we had friends of ours actually go in a couple of weeks after us. I think this could be good. Well, we came back and we said, well, if you get the chance, we know. It makes a difference, doesn't it? Well, if you're a Christian here this evening, praise God that you know something of God's love. Pray that we would know more of it. We grow in, in grace each and every day, don't we? If we read his word, we do learn more. But wherever we are in our walk with the Lord, we know something. We won't know it all until we go to glory. But if you know something of God's love, if you know something of the hope of the gospel, praise God. All of us have an incredible testimony to share where we know something of God. I think there is further evidence of Naaman's faith in his change in attitude. Verse 15, please take a gift from your servant. Your servant. Do you think, remember all those areas that we looked at of pride in, in this man's life? And suddenly he's addressing himself as your servant, Elisha. Sorry, I know you didn't even come out and visit me. Remember, your servant. And, and it's not a slip of the tongue. Naaman goes on to address himself as Elisha's servant four more times in verses 17 and 18. Well, again, I wonder if, if we're a Christian here this evening, how is our attitude? How does it compare to the Lord Jesus? Philippians chapter 2, 5 to 11. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, became nothing, a servant. Do we see ourselves the way the Apostle Paul did as a servant for the gospel? Are we known for our servant-heartedness at church? Are we known for our servant-heartedness outside of church? Naaman's faith also just prompted him to want to remember what God had done for him. Verse 17, Naaman has this request of two mule loads of earth to take back to Israel. I think my father might be coming here soon. Is he? Is my dad coming here at some point, Mike? No? Christmas. Oh, okay, a little while away. That's good. I'm, I'm okay to share this story. Let me tell you, when I was growing up, we used to go on the occasional holiday down to Cornwall just for a week. We later found out mum and dad had their honeymoon uh, down in Cornwall, which is why it was a particular fond area for them. And we used to go down there. Now, we had an Astra Belmont. It wasn't a huge um, car. I don't want to sound ungrateful, but it was packed when all five of us were going away on holiday. And my mum had this habit. <laughs> Wherever we went, it wasn't just Cornwall, actually. 
that if we went to a beach, she would find a stone that she would want to bring back. And I'd always find Dad on the last day of the holiday. I think it was legal back then. It might not be <laughs> legal anymore, so don't do this, children. Um, and I should actually, it wasn't a stone. It was more like a boulder. And, and for Mum, she would say to Dad every time, and I'd see Dad trying to pack the car and trying to put this boulder in the car, in the boot. And, and you see, for Mum, she'd say, well, it's a souvenir of the holiday, Dad. Uh, husband? <laughs> It's going to look great in the garden. Well, Naaman's desire here for his mules to carry as much earth as they can back to Syria had a much more significant reason than as a, a souvenir or improving the look of his garden or because the soil was more fertile. You see, this earth was to be used as a base for an altar to the Lord. This earth would help Naaman remember this trip to Israel. To remember the God who saved him. And I think the quantity of earth here was such that every visitor that must have come to his house must have seen this pile of earth in his garden and asked questions. How many of us keep reminders of what God has done for us? When was the last time perhaps you reread your testimony? Can I encourage you to do that if you haven't done that? Every now and again I, I love to... In God's grace and mercy, I was saved as an 11-year-old. I wrote out my testimony. I love to go back and read that sometimes and remember, oh, yeah, I was there and God brought me to here. And then, and then if you get the opportunity, one of my early pastors encouraged me to do this. Malcolm, keep, keep writing. When, when God is working in your life and you see his hand at work, write it down. Go back to it. Remember what God has done. And then I wonder, well, do we have also anything at home that visitors see in our houses that reflects our faith? Well, to close, just, just look quickly with me at verse 18. Yet in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the temple of Rimmon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, when I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. You know, this request and Elisha's reply, no matter how many times I've read this down through the years, I find it staggering. I wonder what a similar request would look like in, in our lives. I know there are, are Christians that sometimes have to work on a, on a Sunday. Sometimes they have to miss activities uh, for the church during the week. My, my sister-in-law is an ambulance driver. She can't get to every Sunday service as much as she would wish to. Maybe we're the sole Christian in our family and there is pressure for the next family get-together to be on a Sunday because no one else can make a Saturday and you feel conflicted. Your aunt is really poorly and you're desperate to share the gospel with her and yet you also want to be at church. Well, if you're in one of these situations, or a similar one, well, I pray perhaps you'd be encouraged here, because I think the lesson that I take away from this is that Naaman was honest with God. And we too should be honest with God. We must talk to God about everything. Don't try and hide things. And on occasions when the, when the work rotor can't be changed, and you miss a Sunday service, or you miss a, a midweek uh, church activity. Talk to God. God knows our hearts. And just like Naaman, if our heart is in the right place, 
If we have sought God's help, if we have sought God's guidance, well then I think we too, like Naaman, can enjoy the peace of God. What a transformation in this man. What a testimony of God's grace. Now I know. Backed up with tremendous humility from a man that was known for being proud. We could have talked about his generosity. Look at how he wanted to remember God. And think about the way he was honest with God. Naaman in God.